Hello and welcome to the October edition of On The Horizon, our monthly podcast dedicated to helping you navigate through the tricking world of golf course turf maintenance by helping you to look and think a little further forward. I'm Henry Beshley from ICL. And I'm Glenn Kirby from Syngenta. Hmm. And we, we reach a pivotal month, Henry. We do, Glenn. October is the month where we have lots of agronomic issues yes. coming to a head. Yes. That could well shape our destiny for the next six or even eight oh. months. For better or for worse, October is the defining moment. Yes, and so it should be a good poem this month, Glenn. Always is, Henry. And I've heard a rumour that the disturbance theory is making an appearance this month, Henry. Uh, well, don't believe everything that you hear, Glenn. Shall we get going? You need to be more careful, Glenn. What did I say? So, where are we going this month, Glenn? Well, since the end of October is marked by Halloween, yes. I thought we should visit some golf courses with graveyards. Ooh, superb idea, Glenn. Yes, it is. And we're going to go down to St Enadoc, down in Wadebridge in Cornwall, mm -hmm. where there is a church between the 10th and the 14th hole. Ah, well, that could come in handy if you need some help with the back nine. Indeed. Uh, Saint-Pierre. Uh, Saint-Pierre Church Ooh, yes. in Chepstow, Wales, which is where the crown jewels were kept during the Battle of Agincourt. Ooh, and that was an unexpected victory, of which we are hoping more of the same uh, in this year's Ryder Cup. Yeah, I think there'd be similar odds on a victory on that one at the <laughs> yeah, moment as well. Okay, and then we're off up to St Andrews to the cemetery up there. Yes. And of course, the name St Andrews uh, derives from the town's claim to be the resting place of the bones of the Apostle Andrew. Oh, and it is, of course, our own golfing mecca. It is. And then over to Ballybunion in Ireland, hmm. where there is a graveyard on the right of the first hole, oh. which is out of bounds. And I'm told the resting place for many people's brand new golf balls struck from the first tee. Uh, so no relief from the graveyard then? No, the graveyard is the very harshest of penalties, Henry. It really is, isn't it? Anyway, an excellent choice as always, Glenn. Okay, so for the uninitiated, each month we select four locations, uh, one in England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, and we look at their historic weather data for the month ahead, October in this case. And we do this to act as a guide for what agronomic conditions we might face in the near future. Yes, we do. And this is because our memories and perceptions might not be as reliable or as accurate as we'd like to think they are. Yes, quite right. And I think it's true to say that this section is always a bit of an eye-opener and hopefully helps us to get our heads in the right place when we're thinking about our upcoming maintenance plans. Exactly. Okay, so let's start, as always, with the soil moisture balance situation. Yes, this is where we take the rainfall for the month and we subtract the ET or the evapotranspiration and that gives us a simple calculation of how much moisture did we gain 
or how much did we lose? Very good. Okay, so let's go to St. Enadoc first, where a dry year for them mm. is 21 millimetres drier at the end of the month than at the start. Okay. An average year for them, they are 100 millimetres wetter. Now, this one seemed high, so I dug into the figures, but according to my data, it's right, but that feels really wet. Oh, it does. It really does. So I'm not, not convinced on that one. But anyway, a wet year for them is 180 millimetres wetter, which feels absolutely right. So it is getting wetter down there. It really is. I mean, there was the potential to dry out, but it kind of feels like it's more likely to be getting wetter. That's right. So now up to Chepstow, Saint-Pierre, a dry year for them. They are 41 millimetres mm. drier at the end of October than at the beginning, which doesn't feel like it's very Welsh. Mm. An average year for them, they are 24 four millimetres wetter mm. and a wet year by the end of the month they are 78 millimetres wetter than when they started well that doesn't sound too bad at all does it? i mean obviously they can have a wet one but they're sort of like it feels they're the other way that they're sort of more likely to be you know not necessarily having a dry one but not too bad yeah, it does feel like Wales gets away with it better there. Maybe it's yeah. something to do with the estuary and how it all pans out. But um, yeah. yeah, an interesting one. Um, St Andrews, uh, a dry year for them. They come out of October 12 millimetres wetter than when they started it. In an average year, they're 34 millimetres wetter. And in a wet year, 116 millimetres wetter. Okay, so they're very much on the upturn. Mm -hmm. Getting wetter and going into the winter. Uh, and Ballybunion, a dry year for them is just about break even, one millimetre wetter. Uh, an average year for them, they are 52 millimetres wetter. And a wet year for them, 104 millimetres wetter. Okay, so in between. So October seems to be a month uh, in which, in the main, uh, wherever you are in the country, actually, we'll probably come out of it wetter uh, than we went in. The southern parts of the country seem to have a higher chance of having a moisture deficit, uh, with the occasional year being break even. But... A really wet October uh, for some of them looks absolutely disastrous, doesn't it? Uh, you know, some of those numbers were really high. And so it looks like in October, there is a chance that we're going to be getting wetter. But, you know, by how much will depend on the location and the kind of year that we have. All right. So what about the temperatures, Glenn? OK, well, let's do the extremes first, Henry. At St. Enadoc, they have seen a maximum temperature in October of 23 degrees. Mm. And in their coldest Octobers, they've seen minus one degree. OK, so it could actually still be quite mild, couldn't it? It could. Uh, Saint-Pierre, they have seen 27 degrees in some Octobers and a cold temperature of minus two in October. Wow. I mean, so that's actually hot. Yeah, 27 is warm mm. and equally... Minus two is a proper frost. Mm. Um, so St. Andrews, they have seen 21 degrees in their hottest days in October. And at the coldest, they have reached minus one and a half. Yeah, so it could be good, but, you know, we're trending towards winter. Yes, and Ballybunion, 20 degrees is the maximum. And they've never got to zero. They just kind of snuck underneath one degree at their coldest. OK, so still some very pleasant temperatures are possible. And it does look like we have 
have the potential to move into frost occasionally. But look, let's have a look at the average temperatures. They always tell a, a better story, don't they? Indeed. The average temperatures, I think, are a more useful metric. Okay, since, so St. Enadoc, they are seeing an average temperature of 15 degrees during the day with an average overnight temperature of 9.5 degrees. Oh, wow. So so still very much growing temperatures for them. Yes, indeed. And Saint-Pierre, they are seeing an average daytime temperature of 16 mm. in October, with an overnight average of 8 degrees. Yeah, so again, growth for them too. That's right. St. Andrews, they are seeing a daytime average of 13 degrees with a nighttime average of six degrees. Okay, so it's dipping lower for them, especially at nighttime. Yes, and Bali Banyan see 14 degrees in the day on average, and overnight, eight degrees. Okay, so that's similar. But it's, isn't it, I'm quite surprised with these. It's, it's remarkably mild overnight, isn't it? But, you know, I, I think I suppose the other side of this is that it might be good for turf growth, but those temperatures are, all, are also really good for disease as well. So, yeah, we're starting to get the picture, aren't we? Um, just while we're on temperatures, how do they impact on our Primo Max application intervals? Well, it remains mild, so windows don't really stretch as maybe people think. Um, but we are at last moving away from those 14-day intervals that we've been advising all summer long. Mm. Okay, so St. Enadoc, in a cold October, they are at intervals of about 18 days. Mm. In an average October, they are at intervals of 16 days. And in a warm October, 14 days. Yeah, so they're not actually stretching out that much, that much just yet, are they? No, uh, Saint-Pierre is a similar story. In a cold October, 19-day intervals. An mm. average October, 17-day intervals. And in a warm one, 15-day intervals. Okay. Again, tight intervals. Yes, they are. St. Andrews, we see a little bit different. Uh, in a cold October, they're seeing 25-day intervals. Mm. An average year, 20-day intervals. And a warm year, 18-day intervals. Okay. So stretching out a bit further, maybe up to that three-week sort of um, intermediate period that you've been talking about. Yeah. And Ballybunion in their cold Octobers, they see 21 days. In their average Octobers, they see 18 days. Mm. And in their warm ones, 16 days. So anything there from 14 days when warm in the south to 25 days when cold in the north. Yeah, really eye-opening that, Glenn. And, you know, those intervals are still not as wide as I would expect. And I'd imagine that there's a lot of people out there during October who are sort of beginning to stretch out those primo intervals in October and maybe we should just keep an eye on those growth degree days to keep the application intervals you know that bit tighter for longer yeah it's really easy to forget how mild October can be and mm. even in cold years plant growth regulators they don't last much more than 20-ish days when we're in those growing mm. conditions very good Glenn that's been really illuminating <laughs> 
Okay, so uh, knowing we have the potential for it to be wet and those overnight temperatures, you know, they're sort of still quite mild, aren't they? So, so that's going to start to be a worry, isn't it? When, especially when it comes to disease pressure. Yeah, it is. And in October, even when it's not raining, those leaf wetness numbers are going to be up. So it's wet soils uh, or disease pressure then. Okay, let's have a look at those all important leaf wetness hours. What do they look like in October? Okay, so down to St. Enadoc first in a low leaf wetness year. They're at about six and three quarter hours mm. a day. In a average year, they're about 10 and a quarter hours of a wet leaf a day. Mm. And in a high leaf wetness year, 12 and three quarter hours. Whoa, I mean, that is huge, isn't it? Even the average, you know, is, is something to be cautious about. Yeah, it is. Um, Saint-Pierre, they're uh, similar, uh, low leaf wetness years, seven and a quarter hours a day. Average years are eight and three quarter hours a day. And in a high leaf wetness year for them, 10 hours a day. Mm, I mean, it's a bit better, isn't it? But that's still a long time. Yeah, it is. St Andrews, um, it's a bit different here. Low leaf wetness hour years, four and a quarter hours a day. Uh, an average year for them, though, is seven and three quarters. So mm -hmm. sneaking up. And a high leaf wetness year for them, 12 and three quarters. Wow. I mean, again, we've got extremes there, haven't we, from low to high. Yes. But but that's huge, isn't it? I presume that is dreek weather there in October, causing that 12 and three quarter hours. Mm, probably is. Uh, Ballybunion, they have a low leaf wetness years of around six and a quarter. Average years for them are eight and a quarter, but their worst years are are up at around 11 hours a day of leaf wetness. Oh, there we go. There we go. It's in clear it's in clear sight, isn't it? You know, so so for most locations uh, most of the time we're seeing sort of eight to 10 hours of leaf wetness a day during October. You know, some coastal locations in some years might be as low as four and a quarter hours average a day if the wind is blowing. But bad years, some can be sneaking up towards 13 hours a day. Yes, and that's an average, Henry. So there will be concentrated periods in the month of October mm. where those numbers are significantly worse than that. Okay, so we've got... You know, leaf wetness uh, levels being really high and overnight temperatures being mild. And so disease pressure is going to be high, isn't it? And I'm also, I'm not, I'm not actually too hopeful by the sound of those sort of temperature extremes that there's going to be too many sub two degree stopping hours about. You know, this is the metric that we use to understand how cold weather can help us out a little bit by slowing the development of the disease down. And you're absolutely right not to be hopeful, Henry. And look, to start with, before I go into these metrics and numbers, all locations that we've got here have had years with zero sub two degree mm. hours in. Mm. So across these four sites in some October, We've seen no hours below two degrees in all locations. So cold temperatures are certainly not guaranteed for October. Yeah. Okay, so St. Enadoc, they are averaging one and three quarter hours of sub two degree temperatures per month. Hmm. Not a day, per month. Right. You know, in an average month, they only see one and three quarter hours of a temperature that will slow the onset of microdochium patch disease. Hmm. Now, in a cold year, uh, their coldest, they see on average 35 minutes of day 
where the temperature is below two degrees. Well, there you go. Then not much help at all, Glenn. No, Saint Pierre on average. Uh, in average years, they see 11 hours a month. Hmm. Um, and in their coldest years, they might see one and three quarter hours a day. Yeah, I mean, creeping in, isn't it? Slightly, but still no help. No, even in that coldest year, that's probably not enough to make a dent. Yeah, yeah. St. Andrews, an average year for them, 15 hours a month. Coldest years for them, maybe an hour and a half a day. Yeah. So same again, really, isn't it? Can't really rely on that for any help. No. And Valley Bunyan, uh, they see an hour and a quarter in the month in their averages. And the coldest they get is 15 minutes per day. Well, they can completely forget about it, can't they? Okay, so that's really clear then, isn't it? We can't rely on those low temperatures to halt the development of microdochium patch at all, can we? No, but you can start to see which parts of the country those temperatures may become helpful first. Right, let's have a look at the temperature in a slightly different way. Um, What about the Smith-Kearns model, Glenn? You know, our dollar spot predictor. Is that sort of any use at the moment? Yes, it is. It's really useful for some places in the country we see dollar spot pressure right into December. Now, if they are on vulnerable sites, that's a real problem. Yeah. But it's not so good for monitoring microdochium patch disease. I mean, we've talked about this before, haven't we? But, um, you know, we still hear of people using it for that. Yeah, but it's not designed to monitor microdochium patch disease. The temperature range in that calculation is just set up wrong for microdochium patch. Mm. It does a great job of seeing periods with high humidity, but as the temperatures drop, the Smith-Kearns model will tell you you're moving out of dollar spot pressure, but you're actually moving into microdochium patch pressure. Right. Um, there is the Greencast microdochium model that does a good job of picking up those temperature ranges better. It's nowhere near as good as the Smith-Kearns model on humidity. Mm. But there's a lesson there, you know, no model is perfect, mm. you know. So, but by all means, use them both. Um, Use them as part of your tools to monitor pressure, but don't rely on either of them to give you accuracy. As time goes on, we will get better at developing these models, Mm. but they are not perfect. They are simply a tool to help you get a better understanding of what's going on. But what does the Smith-Kearns model tell us about dollar spot pressure in October, Glenn? Of course, it's very good for predicting the levels of pressure Mm. at St. Enadoc. On average, they are seeing 16 days a month where they reach over 20%. Well, that is really high, isn't it? It is crazy high. Mm. Um, Saint-Pierre in South Wales, on average, they see nine days a month over 20%. St. Andrews, on average, they see two and a half days a month over 20%. So that doesn't seem to be an issue for them. No. And Ballymunion, on average, they are seeing nine days a month over that 20% threshold. So not... Not that bad. Okay, so some places clearly now out of that dollar spot risk, but Devon and Cornwall look like they still might be throwing up some worryingly high numbers. Um, over half of October in an average year being above the 20% disease pressure threshold still. Yeah, and and that explains and highlights why this is such a tricking disease to manage Mm. in these areas. It's it's a heady month. There's a lot going on, and dollar spot pressure thrown into the mix just makes it worse for some people. Look, we've got microdochian pressure going up. 
That is driven by mild nights and high leaf wetness. We've got temperatures staying high, which are really helping with that dollar spot. Mm. It's also driving growth well into October for most. Mm. And those primo intervals are probably tighter than most people expect them to be. Yeah, it's an interesting time, isn't it, Glenn? It's, it's that sort of transition into autumn when um, the sort of temperature and moisture levels start to shift around a bit and, and actually go into the sweet spot for some, you know, serious problems for us. And it, it really shows, you know, why October is it might be our defining month. Okay, Glenn, so October is now upon us and the summer, such as it was, now well behind us. But what about the golfers, Glenn, and their level of expectation, you know, when it comes to the course conditions at this time? What are the unique challenges that course managers face during this transitional period? Well, we know October can be a challenging month for course managers, especially those in areas with high levels of grass growth, particularly if that wet weather we spoke about does land on us. But despite the challenges, though, there are still good growing conditions and they generally allow for the creation of good surfaces and the elongation of the golfing season as long as the weather is with us. And that golfing activity can slow down a little at the end of September. Well, the competitions do, you know, and once that happens, it's fair to say that the expectations start to drop a little too. Now, we're past the Ryder Cup and competitive golf is generally put to bed. And if we do get those dry breaks, we can really start to exceed expectations during October and occasionally into November. Mm. And we'll all begin to wonder if we should move the golfing season so it starts later and it finishes later. But if we don't get the breaks and that rain moves in, we can quickly move into worm casting stresses. And now the opportunities to dry out are dramatically reducing. Mm. So wet periods mean wet soils for a decent time after the rain event. Mm. And then we all suddenly realise that golf in a cold spring is much better than golf in a wet autumn. Yeah, I mean, it can be brilliant, can't it? But it can also get ugly. Yes, it can. And so we also need to be aware of those growing conditions too. Whilst they're still strong, they are declining now. And we have to be hyper alert to the facts that this period will also present conflicts and challenges. We are looking for the right balance between maintaining good surfaces and focusing on agronomic developments before that growth disappears. Yeah, and that's that's a really difficult balance to strike, isn't it, Glenn? You know, so so how do you think that course managers handle that pressure from the club to continue to deliver good or maybe even summer surfaces during October? Well, I think course managers require a lot of club support and communication with membership here to you know just to allow them to focus on those long-term wins mm. while meeting the club's expectations. They need that commitment from the club that allows them to confidently use these opportunities to invest in those long-term wins. However, this is sometimes easier said than done as the level of customer short-term expectation also determines how course managers really approach this period. Striking a balance between the short-term and the long-term wins is essential for both course managers and the club's business development. Yeah. You know, we try to deliver, but each club's aspirations and journeys are going to be completely different. Yeah, that makes sense, Glenn. And so how can our dearly beloved agronomists help course managers or, or club managers during this period? 
Well, for agronomists, the main function during October is to keep the plan on track, which can be challenging, but keeping key club members in the picture about keeping your foot on the pedal with investment in long-term wins is important. Those long-term wins will look different for every club. For some, it will be bunker reconstruction. For others, it will be overseeding. For others, it's just simply backing off the mowing Mm. until the dry days permit it to happen properly it's easy to forget here the long-term wins when we're under pressure from the membership like yeah yeah okay so october can be good for golf but it's not the easiest time to navigate especially if we need to crack on with some course developmental work indeed and we kid ourselves about what we can consistently deliver sometimes too you know it's essential to remember that the drier courses or golf courses on really good golfing ground have a strong competitive advantage here Mm. and your members visiting other courses may have a completely skewed opinion of what can be achieved don't let that change your focus it's inevitable but set those agendas with the club and power on through october is our last decent growing month and our first serious microdokium month it's such a heady mix isn't it you know it's a time for good golf but there's some real huge agronomic challenges going on and it just means that we have to stay focused you know on that bigger picture and really trying to do what's most important for the course so henry what are the agronomic risks that we might face in october well glenn As we discussed, the temperatures and light levels are dropping and so the turf is slowing down and so we need to be careful about that. Uh, Leaf wetness levels are increasing and when that is coupled with those temperatures, it means that the conditions are becoming more and more conducive to the development of microdochium patch disease in particular, but also anthracnose basal rot as well and so we need to be careful about that too worm casting might well be on the increased and so we will need to be mindful of that and this is also the time when crane flies might be on the wing which would signal our treatment window if we want to prevent you know problems with leather jacket infestations occurring next year Mm, so there is some really big stuff happening in october yeah there is indeed glenn but as you we've just discussed this is also a time when golfers and and course managers are still wanting to squeeze the last drop out of the course and the greens in particular and so there is a danger uh, that we might be tempted to push too hard for too long at this time especially with our surface preparations yeah and there might even be some end of season competitions of snuck out of that fixture list and Mm. been carried over into october and they might stop us easing back like we want to. So that never helps. No. And I suppose the worst case scenario would be late renovations, you know, scheduled for October when recovery is tailing off fast and the disease pressure is already fully ramped up. And so this will sort of naturally put a limiter on the extent of work that could be carried out, but also only make matters a whole lot worse in terms of disease risk risk and disrupting those surface playing qualities for the rest of the autumn. So so what do we do in that kind of situation then? 
Well, the application of a fungicide beforehand would be a good idea. Yeah, I guess so. And I will talk about that in more detail later on. Mm. Uh, but we would be in the realms of FR321 or maybe in Strata Elite if it's a bit cooler to help provide protection. Yeah. And so if we are wanting to apply a significant amount of top dressing at this time, you know, for good agronomic reasons, then we would also need to try to prime the recovery with some additional nutrition. And also thinking about hardening the sward against disease with the use of some iron sulfate. And so if that is the case, then the Green Master Prolite Invigorator uh, granular fertilizer formulations applied beforehand might help do the trick. The amount of nitrogen that you apply would be dependent on the conditions and also the level of recovery that you require. An application rate for either of the either 4 or or 4014 invigorator grades might vary from, uh, for example, 25 to 30 grams per meter squared at this time. And so delivering 10 to 12 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week over a four to five week period. And so a nicely supportive level of nitrogen, uh, two to three kilograms per hectare per week to help generate that recovery through the top dressing as quickly as possible. But you might be lucky enough to still have soil temperatures around or above 10 degrees C. And so be considering the use of a slow-release fertilizer at this time, the Sierra Form GTK Step 6027 applied at 20 to 25 grams per meter squared can work a real treat at this time if you have the right conditions, but their days are becoming numbered as soil temperatures are decreasing. And so you'd have to take that into account. ICL, we steer clear of recommending the use of organic fertilizers at this time for fear of provoking uh, damaging disease activity. Yeah, it's a tricky time to be messing around with those heavy renovations, isn't it? They could really trip you up at this time of year. There's so much that could go wrong. Yeah, they can indeed. It really isn't the ideal time for renovations, you know, because the consequences of something, you know, going wrong can be really severe and and long lasting, you know, so hopefully we would try to um, schedule them earlier on in the autumn. But, you know, sometimes that's not always possible but if we don't have the renovations taking place at this time and we're just wanting to keep things ticking over then we might not need so much of a a response from our nutrition and so something like the soluble sports master wsf 20 naught naught plus smx which is a soluble feed containing sulfate of ammonia and concentrated seaweed that might be an ideal choice and if applied at 20 kilograms per Per hectare would deliver four kilograms of nitrogen per hectare over three to four weeks and so providing around one kilogram of nitrogen per hectare per week which would generate a lesser response than the granules but one that might be just the job if you're not having to contend with heavy renovations you know so that might be more appropriate for for links and heathland situations that don't have so much work to do and of course this kind of soluble application can form 
form a part of a tank mix with things like the Green Master liquid effect iron and the surfactants that we're using as part of our wider ITM program. Yes. Uh, now, where are we with surfactants in October, do you think? Uh, well, transitional, I think, really, Glenn. I think the general trend within the industry is to uh, at this time be moving from the summer uh, residual surfactants over to the penetrants like H2Pro FlowSmart for instance you know to help with the moisture management aspect of our ITM program yes and you've got some latest research on the benefits of that haven't you we do indeed and I will talk about that a little bit later on in part two Glenn yes and that is because we are entering our second battle in the fight against microdochium patch disease. Yes. And of course, we need to take a belt and braces approach to microdochium patch disease control now because the yes. disease pressure is now high and becoming consistent. Yeah, we're now needing to do everything that we can to slow down the development of the pathogen with our cultural management and also zero it out with the use of our preventative fungicides. And we're going to talk about that later on. But we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to anthracnose, though, are we? No, far from it, especially if the turf is weak and still being pushed too hard. And so we will need to maintain our nutrition at an appropriate level and be mindful of the turf health when considering our mowing heights, for instance, and frequencies. This really is the time when those shaded greens really start to govern the intensity of the maintenance for all the greens, really. And also it's the time when perimeter cuts might be eased off a bit. Yeah, and of course, turf irons can really help us maintain those playing qualities at this time, as long as they're being used responsibly mm. and carefully. And thinking about the times we use them, the soil conditions, and also how we use them, because mm. things like aggressive turning or direction changing can damage turf. And, and at this time of year, that's not recovering quickly from here on in. Mm. It's just something else to think about. Yeah. Now, we also need to think and keep an eye out for moss invasion, don't we? Yes, our seasonal agronomic indicator, Glenn. Um, but if we've set a good agronomic foundation, especially in terms of nutrition and iron and I suppose surface, surface water management, then it shouldn't be too much of a bother. And crane flies, they may well be at their peak flight at the end of September, maybe dragging into October. Mm -hmm. And so this is the time for setting our integrated leather jacket control strategy in motion yes. with the application of a celeprin being key and maybe the use of insect parasitic nematodes as we discussed last month. Yeah, October is treatment time, isn't it? And, and you're going to be talking about that a little later on in part two as well, aren't you? I am, Henry. Okay, and let's not forget that worm casting is also something that might be on the increase in October, especially if it's a wet one. And so we'll be discussing the autumn use of Primo Max 2 as a way of reducing the mowing frequencies at this time to try to reduce the level of smearing and general deterioration that mowing across worm casts can cause. And I, and I notice actually from the magazine that, that brushes are becoming an increasingly important method of reducing the impact of the casting. Yes, yeah, and we've discussed it before, haven't we? But worm casts are such a problem without the potential for a chemical control. So 
Creative mechanical solutions are probably going to provide the best answers. Yes, indeed. So it's a tough time, October, isn't it? And um, well, and there's plenty to go at in part two, isn't there? Yes, we've got the microdokian patch disease battle two to lock swords with. And we've still got Anfracnos in the game. Yes. Possibly a little bit of dollar spot. Um, we have crane flies on the wing, leather jacket control required. And we have worm casting as well. Yes. And all of that along with the benefits of using Primo Max in the autumn. Yeah, so some really substantial issues there to discuss in more detail. Yeah, and then you're taking me out to meet some of your friends afterwards. I told you not to mention that, Glenn. Yeah, but... uh, Is it tea break time? Yes, and I'm definitely going to need one now. Okay, let's get the kettle on. I'm on my way, Glenn. Welcome back to part two of the October edition of On the Horizon. Yes, welcome back, everybody. And it's a meaty one this month, Henry. It's pivotal, Glenn. And we have our integrated pest and disease management strategies to get our teeth into, as well as the continued use of Primo Max 2 to think about. And of course, not forgetting your... Application tip of the month. Indeed. And not forgetting the disturbance theory. Keep your voice down, Glenn. You'll get us all into trouble. What are you on about? But but first it's tea break time. And so I have to ask, what have you been drinking this month, Henry? Well, because I am persevering with my no milk strategy, I've been experimenting this month with various blends and concoctions because it needs to be a much lighter brew if you're not having milk. Interesting. Tell me more. Well, I've been enjoying Darjeeling and Lady Grey teas, but the revelation this month has been white tea, Glenn. White tea? Isn't that just tea? Tea with milk. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of or had a white tea. How is it? It's perfect, Glenn. Oh. Uh, it's actually the same, the same sort of tea as normal black tea, but the leaves are, are dried out quicker and so not allowed to oxidise so much as the, as the black tea. And it makes for the ideal milkless cuppa. It's flavoursome, Glenn, whatever that is, but not overpowering. Mm. Ed really likes it too. Anyway, so what have you been drinking? No change for me, Henry. I'm setting my ways. You know, I've been working my way through a 750 gram jar of Nescafe Gold Blend. It's got Arabica beans that are ground 10 times finer, apparently. Um, so what have you been up to since last month? Well, I've been crown green bowling, Glenn, because I've been called into the B team on a couple of occasions to help them out in the Saturday League. I knew the bowling green management gig was just a stepping stone to a revival of your crown green bowls, Henry. I knew it. (laughs) 
and you get on. Well, mixed fortunes, Glenn, actually. Mm. Um, but it is really interesting because I think that lawn bowls and crown green bowls especially is the, the one sport where the player has or needs to have the, the greatest connection of all with the turf surface. As a, as a bowler, you really need to get an intuitive feel for the surface in order to express yourself during the game. Firm, smooth, true and fast is usually required for the surface, but the final setup of each crown green will be dependent on the extent of the crown and the nature of the contours. So do you think you're more connected than a golfer is to a putting surface? Yeah, yeah, absolutely way more connected and throughout the whole game. I don't think you actually lose connection with the bowl until after it stops. It's really powerful. Interesting. Maybe I need to have a go. You do indeed, Glenn. Okay, so how have you been getting on? Well, my first game was away from home at a council-maintained green, which had unfortunately lost a lot of grass coverage during the dry weather we experienced in May and early June, if you can remember that. Oh, that seems like an age ago now. Yeah, it does. And it hadn't really recovered. And so the grass cover was quite long and there were also widespread bare and bumpy areas. Mm, so far from ideal then. <laughs> no, no, it was slow, inconsistent and uneven. And it was probably the worst green that I'd ever played on. I felt really sorry for the club members having to suffer that all season. So how did you connect with that surface? Well, we managed to have a really good game in the end once I came to terms with it. Uh, before I knew it, I was 15-6 down. Uh, it's first to 21. And that was before I managed to get my head around it, really. But when I got going, it was a lot of fun. Ah, so, so what did you do then? Well, I got used to the slow pace. And when I finally got the jack, I played into all the bare and uneven areas. <laughs> and of course, that was a real leveller. I actually got to 19-18 up with a good run and my opponent was definitely rocking. And then what? Well, to put it pol politely, I threw a lead out of my backside and ended up losing 21-19. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, it was a sick night. In my defence, uh, it was my first proper game for a good few years. And I think I just got ahead of myself in the end. It was sickening to throw it away, however, you know, after clawing my way back. But we had a great game and I made friends with Peter. But in the end, bowls is about winning, really. But a lesson to be learnt, I think. That's right. It's all about the winning and nothing to do with the taking part. Or at least that's what I tell my kids. <laughs> Only joking. If it was all about winning for us Kirby's, we wouldn't bother doing anything. No. I don't think I've even won a bottle of cheap wine in a tombola. Oh. You know, much to Dan's frustration, I am the least competitive person in the country. Oh. So what about your other game? <laughs> Well, that was at home and a completely different experience. Ah, so the green was better, I presume. Yes, it was, of course. Uh, beautifully smooth and true and a decent pace, uh, considering it had been raining so much recently. But if I'm being honest, I, f I found it really, really hard. I think it must be because I've always been a bit of a chucker. It was just 
so easy to be either two yards short or two yards long. It was really frustrating, actually. So you lost then? No, I won to five, Glenn, but it wasn't pretty. I can tell you that. And uh, it was actually, in some ways, it wasn't nearly as much fun because I was so frustrated. But I just kept switching it up and trying to bowl tough marks so you didn't have to get them close. Because in bowls... You know, it's not about getting them close. It's about just getting them closer than your opponent. Master at work, Henry. No, I just think I got lucky with my opponent, really. Oh, were they a bit like me, a bit rubbish and there for the taking part and not the winning? No, but I, I, I think Yvonne didn't have her best day, if, if I'm being fair. But it was, it was really difficult, actually, despite the surface being great and probably um, more of an indication that more practice is required, I think. Uh, okay, but were you happy with the green? Yeah, I mean, it's always a work in progress, isn't it? But, you know, I could understand why some players might have been frustrated because it was difficult, even for a home greener. It wasn't quite screaming fast, and so it was easy to be short on the uphill marks, but it was still running really well, and so equally easy to be too long on the downhill ones. You just needed to come to terms with it, really, and make yourself adjust. Um which is difficult because bowls is a game of feel. But you have to bowl it as you find it and not how you want it, Glenn. Anyway, both games were a lesson and they have been processed and logged away. And I just feel lucky that all my lessons seem to be heaven sent. Very good. And so you must have your end of season renovations coming up soon. Yes. And that's in October after the Barry Turnbull Trophy, uh, which is an open competition um, held at the club each year and renamed recently in tribute to a great man who I knew very well and I know is being greatly missed by everyone so we will have the green right for Barry at the end of September and then get stuck into a heavy renovation schedule uh, straight after we have got I'm afraid to say a number of significant agronomic issues Glenn that we need to deal with I think I might even do some video clips about it very good Henry I look forward to those Mm. so any news from you Glenn not really I'm trying to make some time for some exercise Mm. pay a bit more attention to what I eat learning a few lessons of my own yes you know life is too short isn't it Glenn and we all need to take care of ourselves we do indeed Henry I think we should have a game of bowls and a cup of tea one day let's see what it brings good idea Glenn anyway Glenn God, that was a long old chat, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Starting to feel like a pair of old codgers chatting in the bar after a round. Yeah, I know. How are your bunions, by the way? Painful, Henry. Painful. Shall we crack on? Yes, let's. So, we know that we are in for a difficult period in October because the disease pressure will be reaching its peak. And so, we have officially entered Battle 2 in our war against Microdochium patch disease. As the weather turns, this is the time when Microdochium uh, nivale starts to get the upper hand on the turf. The temperatures and leaf wetness levels are right in the sweet spot for the disease to 
develop, but they aren't ideal for the healthy functioning of the turf. We certainly know that we're going to have to build a really solid program if we're going to get through this period unscathed. Yes, we will. Yes, and these autumn conditions are getting longer, aren't they, each year? And the Yeah, and the Christmas period seems to be getting milder than ever before. You know, if we think back to last year in 2022, when we had that really hard cold snap in November for a couple of weeks, it still went back to being a really mild winter. So it's important that we get our act together in October and get our programs laid out and up and running before it's too late. But... Before we get into the nuts and bolts of those programs, Glenn, we should talk about what success actually looks like during this period. Because we sometimes see people, don't we, beating themselves up when they're actually producing really good surfaces under what are extremely difficult circumstances. Yes, we do indeed. Uh, Look, success is all about maintaining density here, Henry, not losing coverage and preventing that disease from reaching the crown of the plant. Uh, That is the point where the grass leaves grow from, because once it's got aggressive enough to go down to the crown of the plant, we will start to lose the opportunity to recover. Small spots of disease are typically fine. They usually recover quickly as long as they get caught early. And I remember when I did an insanity trial a few years back, I used tiddlywinks to measure the percentage damage cause. I used tiny little ones, about one pence size, and then several different size ones to measure the disease as it developed. And I, the purpose of it was to try and calibrate myself as I entered this world of agronomy and trials. And I, I wanted to get better at measuring disease percentages. Yeah, I remember that. It was really helpful, actually. Yeah, it helped me. But there were several times when I visited that trial when I was placing what seemed like hundreds of tiny little tiddlywinks down to highlight all the new infection points, where I was panicking a bit, thinking that the trial was going really badly. You know, but with good applications and ITM strategies and the breaks in the weather that always come, they completely disappeared by the next time I'd visited and they'd never really impacted the putting surface. But in the plots where we didn't do the work, they had grown, they had moved on a stage and they were becoming more damaging to the turf and they were certainly impacting the putting surface. And that's the key to this. It's not letting things get past that initial infection point. You know, preferably we don't get that initial infection at all. But if we do, we shouldn't see that as a failure. We just need to get it under control before it gets to the next stage. And if it does then happen to move on, then it's about keeping as much density as we can. If we can keep that crown, then we can get recovery. But when we're starting to deal with bare ground, and things that have really thinned out, that gets really, really difficult now because that growth is dropping off. And then of course, we've got November, and then December, and January, and February, and March, and April, and possibly even May until we get that guaranteed growth back. Yeah, and we know it's going to happen, don't we, Glenn? You know, it's on its way because the UK and Ireland is probably way more damp and miserable and for far longer than we would generally want to admit, you know, through the autumn and winter. It is, and the objective here is to maintain a smooth putting surface as is healthy and disease-free, Henry. And as long as we keep the density in that turf, we will be fine. This is what gives us enough to recover those putting surfaces quickly and easily in the spring. If we see some spots of disease, we haven't failed. It's all about what we do then. 
but we can't let them get away from us to that next stage of development. Not in this period of the year. Good point worth remembering, Glenn. And let's talk about how we hit that sweet spot for application in a little while, you know, to help us understand how best to apply that fungicide as part of our wider ITM program. So it seems what you're saying is that rather than expecting to keep the green spotlessly clean, our focus is probably more realistically about not letting the disease move from those inevitable small infection points into larger scars and making sure that we can get through this second battle with a good coverage, a dense sword, and keeping those plants healthy. And if we can protect that crown, ensure recovery where is available when it's needed. You know, the key with all this, isn't it, Glenn, is to catch the disease as early as possible isn't it Glenn? Yes and so to get through this battle two period we need to lean on our two strategies. Yes. Firstly our slow it down strategy mm -hmm. and then our zero it out strategy. Mm. Henry what is your latest take on slow it down strategies? Well, Glenn, as we mentioned earlier, we have some new research from uh, a trial that Andy... Oh, Dr. Andy Owen. Yes, Dr. Andy Owen carried out at the SCRI last year that was actually looking at some of the sort of slow it down strategies that are being used uh, in the UK and Ireland uh, through this time. And um, it showed just how effective some of them can be. But it also showed for our approach uh, just how simple it can be too. Okay, so what's your latest advice when it comes to slowing it down? Well, it's, it's kind of what we've been saying all along, really. Uh, maintain decent plant health with appropriate nutrition and apply monthly tank mixes of Green Master Liquid Effect Iron and H2 Pro Flow Smart. And that's it? Pretty much it. Uh, we might apply some uh, H2 Pro Juice Smart, due dispersant later on when growth tails off and if conditions allow. But in the SGRI trial, it just contained a couple of applications of Sierraform GT K-Step uh, slow release 6027 applied uh, on a couple of occasions at 25 grams per meter squared and that was then overlain by a monthly tank mix of effects iron and the flow smart and that was it and it really did the trick actually you know the fertilizer on its own uh, without the iron and, and penetrant significantly reduced the level of microdochium patch disease from around 17 percent affected area through september and october to about 10% just in the fertilized plots. But when you included the Green Master Liquid Effect Iron at 20 liters per hectare and the Flow Smart at 10 liters per hectare applied at monthly intervals, the percentage area affected by microdochium patch disease stayed well below 5% uh, from October through to January. And this was without any fungicide or indeed uh, any additional dew dispersal, which we know will also help. Yeah, and that's what we need isn't it we need these strategies to slow down the rate of disease development yes you know, particularly through these high pressure periods like october and then yeah. we need to apply these zero it out strategies with our fungicides and then we stand a chance of maintaining the good quality turf that we need to through the autumn period 
But Henry, that was a trial protocol. Uh, yeah. What is your team practically recommending out in the field? Nutritionally, it tends to range from that, you know, slow-release Sierraform GTK step where soil temperatures are still holding up to the more conventional-release Greenmaster Pro-Light invigorators, either the 408 plus 4% iron or the 4014 plus 8% iron uh, invigorator plus formulation if soil temperatures are already beginning to tail off but they're still suitable for sulfate of ammonia to provide a boost but you know as I mentioned earlier there are other options available as well the Sportsmaster WSF 20 naught naught plus SMX water soluble fertilizer is sulfate of ammonia based and so a perfect product for this time and it's one that's actually building a real fan base because of that and of course there's the vital nova stress buster formulation which also contains nitrogen and iron which has also performed really well at this time in previous trials yes you've done a lot of work in that area over the years haven't you yeah we have uh, and so there's a lot of s- slow it down fertilizer options to keep things healthy but the key is to get the level of nitrogen right as well as the source and so we tend to move from two kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per week early on in the autumn to one kilogram of nitrogen per hectare per week later on as simple as that simple stuff glenn um you just need to really speak to one of our dealers or directly to our team if you need guidance on which avenue for nutrition is best for you. And then, of course, the monthly Flow Smart tank mix with Greenmaster Liquid Effect Iron is incredibly straightforward so it doesn't take a lot of thinking about and we also know to only use the deuce smart later on when growth has tailed off but what i really like about andy's work in this area of kind of slowing it down is that it is it couldn't be simpler there's no filler in there or components that aren't really contributing you do look at some of the autumn packages out there and you either think how can those guys sleep at night or you're thinking how do those guys get taken in by that but Andy has boiled our program down really really nicely into its kind of key component parts yeah but sometimes we do need to zero out that pathogen don't we yeah of course because our use of iron specialist surfactants and nutrition aren't controls they're just creating a less conducive environment for the pathogen to develop and making the turf better able to cope but they aren't killing the pathogen so this battle two period which for most is going to be october through to sometime in december you know it might start a little bit earlier for some for some it might drag on a bit later all depends on what the weather does doesn't it yeah well you know that's a good point and we obviously we're hoping that the weather across the UK and Ireland will not always be highly conducive to the development of microdochian patch disease through this autumn period. But if recent experience is anything to go by, then it probably will be, won't it? And so we do need to think ahead and we do need to map out our fungicides properly in particular. Okay, so this is important, isn't it? As it's one of the key factors to getting this right, and that is rotation. Yeah, I mean, fungicide rotation, not only helps us maintain that fungicide performance but it also helps us uh, avoid resistance problems in the future right yeah that's exactly it and it's especially crucial now 
because we have so few active ingredients available to us. So how does it work in reality? Well, by not relying on the same active ingredient and mode of action all the time. You know, we then start to prevent the disease from evolving to be resistant to it. It's as simple as that, really. Um, Biologicals will probably help us out more in the future with this, and they're regularly used in ornamental controls in glass house situations to break resistance. They're a great option for reducing the reliance on chemical products, even though they don't do an amazing job of controlling disease, using them to break resistance is possibly a strategy for the future. So what are the benefits of fungicide group rotation then? Okay, so good rotation means less resistance, better control and more longevity for the products we use. It might mean not always using your favourite product, but rotation needs to be planned to be successful. Okay, so how do we actually go about planning it out? Okay, so it's all about having a long-term plan and being flexible with it. You need to think about the different diseases you may encounter and have a good understanding of the products that are available to you. But for the purpose of this exercise, let's focus on this 12-week period of October to Christmas. Mm. If we can plan out these products and rotations, then we can do the best we can to avoid resistance and get the best out of our programs. So we have previously discussed the relentless disease pressure that the west coast of Ireland uh, might experience through the autumn and winter due to their mild and wet Atlantic weather that they experience. And so for the sake of um, this kind of extreme example, what approach would you take over there? Well, my first application there would be everyone's favorite one box solution, FR321. Now that is Mm. a box mix that includes heritage, medallion and rider. So whilst Ireland can't buy it in one pack, they can mix that combination up. Now, Mm. I wouldn't use either of those products on their own in these early stages of microdochian patch disease. However, they work perfectly when combined together to control a variety of turf diseases. The systemic active ingredient azoxystrobin in heritage works well in early season control, while the contact power of fludoxanil in medallion provides a really nice cleanup effect to lower those pathogen populations. Okay, yeah, and that really is a great combination. So what's next on the list? Well, Henry, Acernity, it's a great product to use early on. Um, It's always best preventative, but at first signs of disease on your turf, it would be really good too. Uh, Acernity is its early curative effectiveness is due to the diphenoconazole active ingredient in there, which has proven to be effective in warm temperatures, making it a particularly useful product in Ireland. And I've got some great news as well, Henry. I had an email just before I started recording this Mm -hmm. telling me that by the time this podcast goes out, there should be some really good news for the rest of the UK on Acernity. So everything Mm -hmm. we're talking about in Ireland should uh, correlate and be useful in the UK as too. So keep an eye on that news um, sometime around the time of this podcast being released, because it's a great piece of technology and um, it is incredibly reliable and efficient. Great. So I'm the first to know. You are. Very good. Okay. So yeah, and and, and we know from from its use in Ireland that we get really good feedback on acernity. But it's not that actually it's also effective against anthracnose as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Acernity is very effective against anthracnose, and anthracnose could well be lingering on. And we also know that FR321 is great on that too. So 
those two products, you know, we're now in a fairly strong position for this start of the autumn season. Uh, both of those will deal with both of the challenges we see at this time of year, the tail end of Anfragnos and the beginning of Microdokium patch. Very good. Okay, so next on my list is Instrata Elite, which also has diphenaconazole in it, knowing we may need some curative technology at this stage of the year. You know, and then as the weather gets colder and the disease pressure reduces a bit, that's where medallion starts to play a really significant role in protecting your turf. Because the fludioxinil in there is a great active ingredient and it adds real power to all the other actives it gets mixed with. But by itself, it's worth waiting until we've got some cooler temperatures and those sub two degree hours are beginning to help out. So if we think from October through to Christmas or sort of, you know, milder autumn conditions to possibly cooler winter conditions, we're looking at FR321 first, Acernity next at the moment for Ireland only, but maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed. Yes, uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> then in Starter and Elite and then Medallion in that order. Indeed. Uh, so that gives us azoxystrobin fludioxanil to start. Mm-hmm. Salatinol diphenaconazole next. Mm-hmm. Fludioxanil diphenaconazole and then fludioxanil. So we take the limited amount of axes we've got. We're putting them in at the key times when they work best without repeating those actives too often. Now, For many situations out there, a free fungicide program of Acernity, Instrata Elite and Medallion or FR321, Instrata Elite, Medallion, depending on where you are and what is available to you, will be enough. Yes. But some will want to build on that for extra security. Now, we run most of our trials on a monthly application basis. Mm. 1st of October, 1st of November, 1st of December. You know, it's not a perfect program, but the thing for us is it's repeatable year on year so we can learn and build on results. Mm. So we've got quite a lot of experience of applying these things on fixed monthly timelines. And as long as we get that first application in front of the disease pressure, Mm. we keep things pretty damn clean. Rarely are we spotless, but always really good levels of control. And we're not including any slow it down strategies. Mm. So we're really confident even on those intervals, things will work. But what we have to remember here is what success looks like. We are not chasing no disease sightings ever. What we're after is a clean putting surface that once we move into that cold period or battle free is clean enough to get through that safely and then as we move into the spring, recover really quickly and provide a great putting mm. surface year round. Mm. Okay, so if, you know, if we continue with our extreme Ireland example, we now have that specific order of FR321, Acernity, Instratorally and Medallion. So how do we go about timing them? You know, now that we've got them on the shelf, uh, when we should we start applying them? Okay, so let's plan this out. We've got a 12-week period we're talking about here, and let's it's called the 1st of October, week one. Okay. Now, assuming we're not in some freaky high pressure weather spell that shows no spark sign of delivering microdokian patch, then we should be starting to think about getting ahead of the game. And for the sake of this example, let's assume FR321 in week one. Then we would probably want to think three weeks forward. Um, as in these milder periods, we'll get less longevity than we will in the cooler periods. So week three, 
we'd go for a cernity, which would be the third week of October. Uh, and then it's likely that the temperature will start dropping a little. So we'll then go through to week seven mm-hmm. uh, in Strata Elite, which would be the second week in November. And then by the time we get to week 11, we would be looking to go with medallion. And that would fall sometime around the second or third week of December. Perfect. So we're starting a bit narrower. And then we start to widen out as the temperatures drop. Now, those are going to flex. We will get some breaks, uh, you know, when we can widen that gap out because the weather period has broken in our favour. We can hold off on an application because we've got a dry, cool weather break. And in some years, we might have to tighten those intervals as it's going to stay milder and that leaf wetness number is going to be up. Mm. The quality of our slow it down ITM programme is also going to play a role here. The better that that is, the better chance we have of slowing down the development and widening out those application intervals. But in the main, that is a solid fungicide program with good rotation and good cover through a very difficult battle too. Okay, so what about nailing those application timings properly then? Well... There's a few things we could do here, and I really like the bag method. This is when we take a plug out from our indicator greens, those greens that get the problem first out on your golf course. We take that plug out, we put that plug in a plastic sealed bag, put some moisture in there, put it in a warm place and seal it up. And we wait to see how long it takes for that disease to kick in. If it's instant and you've got disease the next day, you know you are very, very close to a microdochium outbreak. If it takes seven days, however, and it takes a long time to develop, then you know you've got a bit more time because in that bag, you've created that perfect environment for the disease to thrive. That can give you some confidence to hang back a little if you want to invest the time in that. Mm. Yeah, and I know you recommend that people do that application as well, don't you? Yeah, I really like taking a plug from those indicator greens, you know, the worst ones, just as you arrive with a sprayer. So before you apply your fungicide, then you apply as normal and then you come back later in the day, take another plug. You put them both in bags as before, put some moisture in them, seal them up, put them in a warm room, maybe a drying room and then keep an eye on the two. It will give you real confidence in the benefit of the application you have made. I also really enjoy seeing when people put out knockout boards as well, Henry. Yeah, well, just remind us what knockout boards are. Well, it's a small board that you keep on your sprayer. The bigger, the better, but it needs to work for you. I see some people use ones as small as 30 centimetres by 30 centimetres. I really like a metre by a metre, but you wouldn't want to go any smaller than 30 by 30. Lay it down on the green prior to spraying, and then that means that that area you've covered up doesn't get any application from your sprayer. And you you can start to gauge what level of control you're getting, and you can start to see how active that disease really is. It's so visual and a really good way to communicate with your membership the value of your budget. Just do it at the back of a green, a back corner in an area that won't get pinned, Once you start doing it, you'd be surprised how useful it is to guide your strategy. Okay, so there's a couple of good tips there, aren't there, to help us gauge the effectiveness of our treatments, but also the level of background pressure. Have you got any other insights on when to start? Uh, Yeah, historic records will help. The more data and information you collect, the better chance you've got of getting that first application right. You can look back through your spray records and see what you did last year. You can look on the Syngenta website, our historic green cast model to see when pressure tends to yeah. ramp up for you and of course you can listen to us natter on about leaf wetness and dropping temperatures 
But once you've boiled all of that down, I bet you're not far away from pulling that trigger back end of September, beginning of October. Now, hopefully we'll be in a really positive weather spell with low leaf wetness hours and good growth. Uh, but there's things against us here. Those temperatures are always going to be dropping at this time of year and day length is always shortening. Mm, okay, so there's sort of some strong messages here, aren't there? You know, to program uh, properly, to plan out your um, integrated program and also to be preventative with your applications. So, Glenn, why should we avoid falling into those curative applications? Well, we've talked about how preventative measures are always better than curative ones and that getting ahead of the disease is crucial in turf management. It's all about catching a disease before it has a chance to spread and cause real damages. Now, fungicides do work curatively, and we know that because in all of our trial work for registration, we have to start when disease is at 5%. So they're all trialled mm. curatively, and we know they work. Mm. But the thing is, turf doesn't recover um, in these temperatures. So even if we get control of that disease, we create a problem for ourselves for recovery later on. And so we shouldn't be completely avoiding curative applications. Yeah. We should just be doing everything we can to avoid them. And we should be doing everything we can to pull those applications forward a little bit. The, the earlier we go, the more effective we are. Now, we did some work at STRI on this last year because I know industry still has an element of them out there that want to stick to this kind of curative philosophy. Mm. So I was on the hunt for a tank mix of our products so I could give them a curative solution. Mm, very good. So what did you find? Well, we changed our setup a bit in this trial, Henry. Uh, in our normal trial work, we generally assess every 14 days. So every two weeks is when we'll do a disease assessment. And what's interesting about that through all of our data is we don't really see any differences after 14 days between any of the fungicides, old or new. Um, and they all look to give the same level of control. But industry feels that modern technology and modern fungicides don't deliver on the same level. So I wanted to tease out the differences immediately after application in this one, which is when course managers are super focused the day after application to see if that app has worked. So we assessed every three days after application to try and look at it as if we were course managers. And it was really interesting. The data supported my hypothesis that after 14 days, we had really good levels of control. Mm. But after the third day and the sixth day, we did see some separation. Nothing statistical, but the disease because the disease just can't move fast enough to give us big differences over that time. But I suspect industry is right. And that in a curative situation, the three days after application, it's slower to respond than historic fungicides were. But after 14 days, there's no difference. The quality of turf, the amount of disease, there's no difference. So I stand by modern fungicides as being as good as their ancestors. Mm. But the difference is there the day after application. So you may see more disease activity than you think you used to, but you have to hold off on the panicking and don't reapply. You've got to have faith. It will work and it does work. Mm. After 14 days, I'm really confident there's no difference from older technologies. But the advice still stands for old technology and new technology. Preventative is best. The earlier you see and apply, the better. Hmm. You know, preventative is the best approach. When you see the first signs is the next best. Curative is the worst. 
This yeah. is not the time to wait. Once those sub two degree hours kick in, we can play that waiting game a bit more, but not in October. Very interesting indeed, Glenn. And I think you're right. I think you're right about that, especially about that sort of initial response and the, almost like that sort of fear in on the part of the course manager the next day thinking that it's not working uh, when actually, you know, you've just got to have faith that it really is. And, you know, the hundreds of trials that you do sort of back that up, doesn't it? Okay, summing up. So, so what's the key? take home message here for turf managers when it comes to fungicide applications okay so turf managers need to be vigilant and assess turf regularly plan our fungicide strategies fr321 acernity instructor elite medallion map out your timings start tighter and widen them out and if you need more applications in there, look at your rotation and think about how it's going to work. Now, remember, all of these fungicides are good in the mild, except medallion. And be ready to pull the trigger around the 1st of October. And let's all just hope for some cold snaps. Um, those sub two degree hours are our friend and um, they enable those intervals to be widened. Yes, very good indeed, Glenn. Okay, Glenn, we've spoken about our foundation uh, integrated turf management strategy. Slow it down. Yes, and we've spoken about our fungicide products. Zero it out. The next obvious question is, should we throw them all into the same tank? I ask this because tank mixing of our ITM products seems to be a great way to enhance the effectiveness of those slow it down strategies. But what are your thoughts on tank mixing other things in with the fungicides too, Glenn? Well, there are definitely benefits to tank mixing, aren't there? Um, and we've got two different types of tank mix. We've got the convenience ones and we've got the beneficial ones. Okay, so um, let's start off by explaining what these definitions actually mean. Sure. So convenient is when it suits us to put things in the tank to save us time. And beneficial is when we put two things together to try and get more out of them. We do the convenience one more and more because there are limitations when it comes to spray windows. And you just don't know what spray windows are around the corner. Many people miss those windows because they leave it too late in this period of the year. But we just have to be proactive and grab them. And this is something we've been looking at with the new app, which is getting very close now. Uh, we've Ooh, built very a spray. Good. Yeah, we'll, we'll be talking about it more next month. We've built a new spray window calculator in that new app. And that can highlight what opportunities are coming down the road for you. But when we built it, it became really obvious how limited spray opportunities are. So we do absolutely need to grab them when available. And sometimes that's going to mean mixing more things in a tank than we'd like to. Yeah, that is a good point, isn't it? Because it's not just about sort of wind and rain, is it? Um, ground conditions can be too wet too, for instance. And so opportunities to get a sprayer out later on in the year can, can really disappear. Um, so it's always going to be on the turf manager's mind to put more in the tank. You know, it makes the most of those spray windows. It saves time. And so it's convenient, which is important. But what I want to know is, you know, what's actually better 
beneficial in terms of treatment performance, for instance, by mixing those different things together? Okay, so beneficial tank mixes are where we add products to try and get better results. And FR321 is a really good example of where we mix heritage and medallion Mm. and rider, and we see those better results. We did some research on this last autumn to understand the benefits of a few tank mixes. And there was a couple of clear winners, some really great news. There was Rider and Greensmaster liquid effects, as I would expect, really performed. There wasn't much in there that made anything worse. Uh, There were a few bits that did make things slightly worse, but they're not on the market yet. Just stuff we were looking at for the future. Okay, so what advice would you give on the back of that study then? Well, the advice I give is put Rider in there every time. It lifted turf quality and the disease percentage always seemed to be lower. The Greensmaster mm. Liquid Effect FE is great and a really worthy tank mix partner too, mm. but probably best say for those slow it down applications that you were talking about, Henry. Yeah. So by all means, if the opportunity falls that way, go for it. But at the same time, it's not a frontline strategy. The best strategy is to split that out and apply when appropriate. But those opportunities don't always present themselves. Yeah, I agree with that, Glenn. You know, I think we probably need to save that iron as an in-betweener to sort of help slow down that sort of early redevelopment of the disease after the fungicide had been applied, um, you know, a couple of weeks afterwards on the run-up to the next application. So timing would be important there. But I'd always recommend getting that rider in with probably with with all other applications at this time. But what about Smart, for instance, or Judasper? What about their use in and around fungicides? Well, you've done a bit of work on this too, haven't you? And whilst I don't have anything super conclusive, I think it's fine most of the time from what I've seen. Occasionally, you may get lower efficacy from a systemic, Mm -hmm. but I don't think either of us have seen any real downside to adding it to anything containing a contact fungicide like medallion or anything with fludoxanil in it That's right. uh, and the period where you just want to start using juice smart yep. is generally as we shift in the direction of products with contacts in them so once again if you have to tank mix it yes. go for it but generally keep it separate it won't make it better there is a chance that it makes make some products slightly worse. Yeah. Okay. So, so what are, are your thoughts on tank mixing Primo Max with fungicides, Glenn? Ooh, now, that's a big one. How to use Primo Max 2 in the autumn. And it's so big, Henry, I've put together another section on that one for later on. Very good, Glenn. I, th- I feel like I need another cup of tea after that. All right, Glenn, what about crane flies and the control of leather jackets in October? What are your thoughts? Well, here we are. We're, we're likely to have seen crane fly flying around in September. I saw my first one at Leicester City Sports Turf Academy on the 6th of September this year. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what the warm snap that we had at the beginning of September has on that. Um, but I expect it to be fairly similar to most years. And for most years, we see the peak of the hatch around the third week of September. Now, this is what sets us up for our Acelloprint application, which now has a full registration and is available with no stewardship. Very good. Yep, it's an incredibly effective product in controlling leather jackets and um, in our management against crane flies and their larvae when applied at this period of the year. Now, using our pest tracker data and 
all of the inputs that the industry has given us over the years, which has been amazing, and a lot of trial work and user trials and people sharing their successes, we have identified some key times to be applying a Salaprint to get the best out of it. Yeah, yeah, we've got a lot of experience with it, haven't we? And so the first step, if we're thinking about the application of a seller print, is to, you know, monitor those um, flight patterns of the crane flies, which we will have been doing for a few weeks now. And Pest Tracker is an essential tool for that because it helps us gather that data. Yeah, so keep please keep adding your sightings to Pest Tracker. Uh, it allows us, allows us to fine-tune our advice and understand if these patterns are shifting at all. But assuming everything does mm. what it normally does, then we are waiting for the uh, back end of that peak flight to apply our acelerant. And that usually occurs the last couple of weeks of September, but can drag on into the early parts of October. Now, the key for the success, it seems, is to make sure that we have most of the leather jackets laid and in the ground. A celebrant doesn't move far in the soil profile. It sits in the top four centimetres for most of the winter. So having all of those eggs laid and mostly hatched seems to give us the highest level of control. We see some people starting to push those applications back further and further, but we feel and we see in the data that those applications made right around the second, third week of October for most of the country is about right. Well, that's good to know, Glenn. So what about the right sprayer setup and water volume and things like that? Uh, of course. So a high water volume is recommended. The pressure should be kept low to prevent drift. The irrigation sh system should be up and running to help us keep the surfaces moist to ensure that the pest stays near the applied product. Steady rainfall is preferred to apply the product if possible and keeping moist soil to keep the leather jackets near the surface for the next two weeks will all help. Okay, and what about in trying to increase the level of control with the additional use of insect parasitic nematodes? Yes, we've been working with nematodes in a few ways now. Uh, nematodes in the celebrant have been researched in depth and as a way to increase levels of control and meet the demands of course manager, it seems to provide some solutions. Okay, so how would you go about getting the best of that integrated approach, Glenn? Well, we've done a load of research and what we found consistently is that when we follow up our acelerant application with Nemotrident, we see improved consistency and more robust levels of control, which is really important for some people on some sites, particularly in those high pressure venues. Uh, the acelerant is doing a lot of the heavy lifting here, so it's critical we get the timing right with that, and that needs to be applied right around those back two weeks of October. The challenge for a celebrant in that situation, though, is the wide range of age diversity it's got in the soil. If we're thinking about the pest hatching pattern that we've seen, we were getting some reports in the middle of August of crane fly flying. So we're having to wait until the end of October to apply this product. So some leather jackets have been in that soil for maybe eight or nine weeks now in a very warm period of the year and they've had plenty of opportunity to feed and grow. But also, you know, we've got some that have only just hatched and will be minuscule in size and incredibly vulnerable. Now, where a celebrant can struggle is with the leather jackets that are sitting at depth or have really matured. But what we do know is the celebrant stays there for a long time, so anything moving up and down into it will get weakened and potentially taking out. So anything that's big and strong and is able to cope with the paralysis caused by a celebrant will still be weakened. So what we do then in this mid to late October application is remove the weak, weaken the strong, and that means then we can send in nematodes to follow up 
to remove the strong that have been stressed and weakened by the acelebrin. Okay, so why have you worked on this strategy then, Glenn? Well, some people just aren't getting enough control, Henry. They are getting good levels of control, but not high enough to cope with the pressure they Mm. see or meet their high demands. So we've looked at this in depth to see if we can offer higher levels of control and consistency. And consistently with this method, we see pretty good results. Okay, so if people need to use this strategy, what do they do? Okay, so a celebrant back end of October from week two onwards, really. But if you want more control than that, and you're on a high pressure site, or traditionally a celebrin hasn't given you the level of control that you desire, then follow that up with nemetridin within seven days of that application. Okay, seven days is interesting, Glenn. Why, why is that needed? Well, we're in a bit of a game here, Henry. We're in a race against soil temperatures. The soil temperatures are declining, and then we know nematodes are less effective in cooler soil temperatures. So we know it's highly likely that after the beginning of November for some, maybe the end of November for others in some years, that soil temperatures will be below the optimum eight degrees we need. So we want to make sure we get these nematodes down before then. But equally, we want to get our, get our acelebrin down after the majority of cranefly have hatched. So it's a race. We've got that start point, which is about the third week of October, and we've got an end point of the middle of November, which is historically when these temperatures drop off. So we need to give the nematodes time to do their job. So the closer to the acelebrin, the better. Now, in other countries where we have soil temperatures that hang on for longer, it's a different approach. But in the UK, that's the date to pencil in your diary if you want to go for that strong program. Mm, Okay. Um, Any thoughts on who this total approach mainly applies to? Well, this integrated approach is for courses with high pressure. It's for courses where we need to do everything we can, places with high-end tournaments that can't afford to risk anything. Uh, Is there anyone who probably doesn't need to take this approach? I would warn against people using it who are not confident that they will get it down in time. Those people with Mm. limited spray windows or unreliable equipment. The weather window can turn quick and nematodes will not survive the winter in the pack in your fridge and it will then be pretty useless. So if you're going to use this program, we need to be really committed to make it work. So this is only for those people that can commit to getting it right. Okay, but you can buy this combination and it's being called the LTAP package, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I know that with ICL, we have packaged up that LTAP package, the Leather Jacket Total Approach Program, where we've tried to make it as cost-effective as possible for people. And it is best to talk to your ICL team member to ask for some further support on that one. Now, I know that the nematodes are challenging to apply, Glenn. Have you got any advice for us on that? Yes, I do. And I'm going to make you wait until the application tip of the month later on for more details Uh... on that one. I always look forward to it, Glenn. So in conclusion, it is crucial to control leather jackets in October to prevent both primary and secondary damage occurring to our turf grass later on in the spring next year, potentially. Uh, Acelepran does provide really good control of this pest. Um, It's extremely effective, but it must be timed and applied properly. So you need to be monitoring flight patterns, using pest tracker, and probably aiming 
for application around sort of the second to third week in October for a celeprin and maintaining good moisture levels uh, to help it work down into the soil. But also, you know, obviously staying within the boundaries of the label. And if you need some added control, then the LTAP package might be for you. And we, and that is with the nematodes being applied shortly after the acelaprin. Yes, it is. Thank you for that excellent summary. Very good. No, thank you, Glenn. Okay, Glenn, as we move into true autumn, we still see and hear of many people using Primo Max in lots of different ways. And so we thought it would be a good thing to talk about. Yes, it's been around a long time, Henry, and people experiment and find ways where it works for them on their site. So let's start from the beginning. Why would we still be using Primo Max in the autumn? Well, Primo Max is typically used to control or manage growth. Now, remember that it doesn't suppress growth, it redirects directs growth, giving us a denser sward that has tillered more. Now, I think we're seeing more people use it in the autumn period because of the warmer weather we tend to now see, allowing for more mm. grass growth going into the winter. So I think people are using it to help reduce traffic from mowers a little and take the pressure off. Um, we also have a lack of controls now for worm casting, which really starts to become a problem during this season. And fairways treated with Primo will need less mowing and less mowing mm. or at least delayed mowing until conditions are better means reduced worm cast smearing and a slightly easier situation to manage. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole growth suppression thing to help us manage our mowing programs. But do you think it has a role to play in our turf health management programs too? Yes, some will be using it for that. In fact, those using it to help with mowing management will be picking up the same benefits, but just might not have noticed or realised. It offers several plant health benefits, and I know some turf managers also feel that Primo Max gives them better longevity from their fungicides. Mm. And whilst I wish I could, I can't find any evidence or create any trial that supports that though. Yeah, I mean, it sounds good, doesn't it? But mm. I, I think the mindset is that the, or the thought is that the less clippings that are being removed, then the less fungicides being removed. But I don't know how true that is. But it can't do any harm, I suppose, can it? No, and I think that's absolutely fair. The combination won't do any harm. The impact of Primo Max on disease is often debated. But regulated turf doesn't necessarily mean the fungicide will last longer. It's been heavily researched mm. in the USA and in one of John Kaminsky's papers, he closes with, in most cases, Trinexpac E4 has been shown to have little or no impact on fungicide performance. Okay, well, that is interesting. There you go, fairly conclusive. So why, why not? Well, Primo Max by itself will definitely put a grass plant in a better place so it can resist disease more. And that study and others show that we see lower numbers of infection centres sometimes. Rarely is it statistically solid number, but it's regularly a positive trend. Uh, but we don't see any additional fungicide longevity. 
Um, all right. Well, I mean, that's interesting in itself, isn't it? So, so do you think it could be included as part of our slow it down strategies? Yeah, yeah, I do. And in the Nordics, they use Primo in their programs right up into the autumn to help improve plant health and reduce the severity of disease. Now, mm. they have a closed season and are really in preparation mode for a winter cold snap. So they lose some of the stresses we experience over here of mowing and golfer traffic. So it is slightly different and probably not to be replicated but it's really interesting to know mm. because Prima Max by itself is a positive but the power of a fungicide in these trials completely outweighs it when it comes to disease control now the degradation of a fungicide will be down to many things it'll be down to UV light it'll be down to soil microbiology which always wins against the fungicide and mm. simple time the physical removal of that fungicide from the grass plant is a small part of it. Mm. It would be really nice if it did make fungicides last longer. Um, and we've done a few UK trials on microdokin patch to try and understand this, nowhere near the depth of the USA studies. But we do see the same things on its own, improved plant health and slower development speed for diseases. With a fungicide, no added benefit. Mm. That doesn't mean don't do it, it just means recognize why you're doing it. As part of a program based on growth degree days, we can make the plant healthier using Primo Max, putting the plant in a position to resist and fight that disease. But it's probably not making your fungicide last longer. Mm, but that's interesting, isn't it? So Primo used as part of our slow it down strategy might be a good idea. But using it as part of our zero it out strategy is a non-starter. Yes, as long as we're aware that we shouldn't be over applying it when we're losing the growth. Mm, so using it yeah. in a strategy through October and then tailing off to you know, to a lower rate, dependent on your situation. Mm. It, it does have a role to play. Okay, so what about sort of rates or situations where you wouldn't use it, Glenn? Okay, well, I'm not a big fan of Primo in the depth of winter on greens. So for some, October applications may well be their last one. Um, tees, fairways and approaches, absolutely fine. You go for it if you want to, all winter long. Worst case scenario is you'll see some slight yellowing in those higher height cut situations. I wouldn't even change the rates on those higher height cut. Just stick to a 200 growth degree day interval, base temperature is zero. And what you'll find is if we get a normal year, by the time we kind of get to November, December, you'll be at six weekly intervals. And then we get into the really cold weather of January and that naturally ends the program until the spring. Okay, but what about the greens? Okay, well, like I say, this is where I get nervous, Henry. We are imparting a lot of stress on greens over the winter so we need to take care mm. october we are probably fine but if you've got weaker surfaces october may be the time to stop using it i'm just a little cautious with this one it definitely has a role to play for some mm. so i think as a rule of thumb i would only use it after october if you've got excellent coverage so you know start winding down from october rate wise Go with your normal rate in September, then half it in October. Stick to those 200 growth degree days and then half it down again for the next one. And that way the program kind of fizzles out with the growth. Yeah. My worry though is as we get colder, uh, November, December, January, it hangs around longer in that plant. So those that are sticking to fixed intervals and a higher rate are just loading up that plant with growth regulator at a very difficult time of year. 
that could be the trigger that overwhelms the system. Good advice, Glenn. While we're at it, can you talk us through the recommended Primo rates that you'd be thinking about during this time? Okay, so recommended rates are a maximum of 400 milliliters every 200 growth degree days of base temperature zero. And then we'd reduce it down to kind of 200, depending on when our October one falls, and then down to 100 milliliters for the next application. If that's for you, it's crucial to stick to these growth degree day programs through the winter. We want to avoid overlapping products, which means that we would probably spread the applications out nice and widely when that temperature cools down. Now, if you're just starting with Primo, I would recommend waiting until next spring because October is not the time to be experimenting with your first PGR application. Very good, Glenn. Thanks for that. It's that time again, Glenn. Time for my favourite part of the podcast. It's your application tip of the month. Well, more of a series of tips this month, Henry. Brilliant. Yes. Now, October is the time when some people will be applying Nemotrident as part of their integrated strategy to reduce leather jacket populations to get the best out of them. Yes. And to get the best out of them, they'll be applying within seven days of the Acelaprin application at the back end of October before the soil temperature drops below eight degrees. So it's a bit of a race and one we need to commit to to give us our best shot. Okay, so where do we start? Delivery, Henry. Oh. As it comes, get it in the fridge as soon as you possibly can. We do not want nematodes to be stored in warm temperatures. They become active when they are above eight degrees and they start using energy and effectively slowly dying. Oh. Okay, so we, so we put them in the fridge to keep them dormant, do we? Well, not strictly true. In the fridge, those lower temperatures, three to seven degrees, they are still active, just very slow, okay. not expending any energy. So if they get too cold, then they start to die. So keeping them at three to seven is critical. And the closer the delivery that is to the application, the better. This is a numbers game and the better quality and the more alive nematodes there are, the better chance we have of getting a good hit. Okay, so straight in the fridge then. Uh, what's next? Well, when we're ready to apply, we take them out of the fridge for 20 minutes before we want to use them. These are live nematodes. We don't really want to shock them. We want them to acclimatize gently to their new temperature. They will become remarkably active quite quickly. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so whilst we're waiting for them to warm up, let's get the sprayer ready. So we're taking out all of the filters, nozzle filters, check all the nozzles to see how many have had them in. You'd be amazed what I see. There's all sorts of things <laughs> missing. Then go to the main inline filter. Some sprayers have a suction filter at the top of the spray tank too. There is no rule. I've seen anywhere from one to three filters on a sprayer. They all need to come out except the basket filter that one in the top you leave it there because that's your last chance to break down any clumps that there may be in the mixture we're just about to create okay so when setting the sprayer up what water volume should we be looking at as high as possible but without upping that pressure uh, same rule as normal really two to three bar largest nozzle you can well why is that then well two reasons first it allows the highest water volume at the lowest pressure and secondly nematodes are about 0.8 millimeters long and when we're spraying these things we are forcing that 0.8 millimeter worm through the pipework and every time they meet a restriction a filter a nozzle anything like that we risk damaging them 
Now, every damaged nematode is an ineffective nematode. Okay, so the sprayer is uh, properly prepared with the filters out and a large nozzle, white XCs, I presume. Mm -hmm. uh, the basket filter is left in, however. What's next? Then into the bucket, Henry. The more you can split it down, the better. One bucket per pack would work really well. Mm. Keep agitating and stirring for five to 10 minutes and then decant that bucket into the sprayer. That's the time to add in your Nema spreader, which will help them move through the soil profile, and away we go. Huh. They don't like sitting in the water for a long time or being recirculated around the tank through the pump, so best practice is to break it down into two loads if you possibly can. The important thing, though, is to try and irrigate immediately after you apply. Nematodes will move through water films, so washing them off the leaf to the soil gives them their best chance of surviving and reaching the target. Okay, now what about application time? And, um, and by that, I mean during the day. I've heard a lot about um, ultraviolet light damaging the nematodes. Yeah, that is true. They do not like UV light, but they are far more likely to die from desiccation and drying out. The UV light and desiccation are strongly linked on a Day with high UV light, it's also unlikely you'll have lots of moisture about. So, you know, for drying out, we'll get to them a long time before UV light will. So, key here is irrigate immediately. The best time to apply, if you could, would be about nine o'clock in the evening when they have the whole night to fend for themselves and sort themselves out. But we know that's really tricky. So, the key thing to remember is to irrigate as soon as we can after application. This is a numbers game, Henry. We are trying to deliver 2.5 billion nematodes in this integrated solution. That is about 25 nematodes per centimetre. Our job at application is to make sure as many of them as possible are still alive. If we do that, and we can lift the levels of control that Acelebrin gives us. Very good as always, Glenn. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Okay, so that's October then, and it's another biggie. It is indeed. So, Glenn, could you please summarise the month for our listeners in your time-honoured, poetic manner? Always a pleasure, Henry. <clears throat> in October's waning light, climatic challenges may give us a fright. Mm. Warmth still lingers in the day, and pests and pathogens cause dismay. Mm. Acelaprin applications come to the fore. Managing worm casts is a chore. Microdochium leaves us all forlorn, and leaf wetness is here from dusk till dawn. Uh. Dollar spot still causes discontent. Its onslaught for some shows no relent. No. Competitions may be slowing down as the season's end finally comes around. As nature dons its autumn hues, the cranefly life cycles once again renews. Mm. Yet amid these trials and tribulations, October's beauty soothes all our frustrations. And if you're wondering about the rumours of disturbance, just wait here a minute for a dramatic resurgence. Oh, it's all very mysterious, Henry. I don't know what you mean, Glenn. So anyway, cheerio, everyone, for another month. It's uh, November next. Yeah, it's November next. Yes, um, but we've got October to deal with first. So good luck and keep your eyes on that horizon. And a special 
get well soon to Martin who had a bit of an accident and so I know he'll be listening because basically he's got nothing else to do so Martin get well soon we are all thinking of you and we're looking forward to seeing you soon yeah look after yourself Martin and goodbye to everybody else and good luck right this way Glenn where are we going Henry come on this way and put your hood up What's going on, Henry? Uh, I thought you said that you wanted to include a bit on the disturbance theory. Keep it down, Glenn. They're already getting too close. So, so, so where are we going? To the other side of town, Glenn. To meet the gang. It's a bit dark and eerie, Henry. Well, you see, Glenn, it's, it's more like a secret society these days. Oh, right. So why the secrecy? Well, it's it's partly the fear of shaming, but mainly because no one's really that interested anymore, apart from a few remaining devotees. Wow. Can't believe I got an invite, Henry. How long has this been going on? Well, pretty much since we finished, you know, writing the articles and doing the seminars, I suppose around 2009. But we've just about managed to keep the, the idea alive, but it gets more and more difficult each year. So where are we going? The less you know, the better, Glenn. But it's just round the corner through those large iron gates. Is this a graveyard, Henry? It is, Glenn. Uh, We pick an evocative venue each time, mainly in order to be able to use a few sound effects. Nice one. A cave would be good. I'd love an echo. An echo. An echo. An echo. An echo. Not now, Glenn, but good idea. Anyway, a cemetery seemed apt for this one. Just this way and through that gap in the hedge. Ah, hello, gentlemen and lady. I'm sorry I'm late, but I brought Glenn along. We use assumed names, Glenn. But... but my name is Glenn. I know, Glenn, but they don't. I hope you don't mind, everyone, but I brought with me a new member. Oh, that's fine. I suppose so. Not him, I heard his podcast. Okay, so for Glenn's benefit, shall we start this meeting from the very beginning? Listen, I know we were all looking forward to discussing the detail of our phase three irrigation strategies, but that will have to wait. So, we are all here because we believe that it is perfectly possible to maintain golf greens that are populated by grasses other than annual meadow grass. I like we do. do. Oh, that's right, that is. That's right. And we want to achieve this because it will make our greens better, less susceptible to developing microdochian patch disease and anthracnose, and be more suited to the pressures that are being placed upon them or make them more appropriate or authentic to the style and nature of the golf course. That's right. Yes. We all understand that this is not easy. Sort of. Right. Difficult. But we think that it will be agronomic worthwhile in the long run. We do that we do too. That. Aye, we yes. Do that too. Aye, yes. He's right, isn't he, Governor? 
And we understand that achieving our goal will require us to develop our own management strategies that fit with our own position on the transitional timeline and that we will need to evolve our strategy rather than taking a single and prescriptive approach. Aye. Aye. That's right. He's got it, you know. Get on with it. And at no point do we compromise on playing quality. Never. Never. Okay. So we all understand that the sword species composition of any established turf is simply a reflection of the environmental conditions that are being placed upon it. And we also understand that the different grass species thrive in different environmental conditions. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah. Annual meadowgrass thrives in situations where disturbance, pressure or physical damage dominates and the stress levels are low, which is why it dominates her golf greens. Brown top bents and the fine fescues, on the other hand, have a slightly greater level of stress tolerance, but thrive under lower levels of disturbance than the annual meadowgrass. And the creeping bent grass is somewhere in between. All good? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so it would naturally follow to think that to achieve a transition from annual meadowgrass to finer Benson fescues or creeping bent grass, that all we would need to do would be to shift the balance in our maintenance slightly to reduce the disturbance pressure and carefully increase the level of stress, you know, ease up on the feed and water. That's right. Yes, I agree. Yes. Yes. But... That is not quite right, is it? No, 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 no. that's not right. No, that's not right. no. Because, first off, we need to get our agronomic foundation in place to create an underlying environment more suited to the desired species and one that we can control better when playing with the pressures later on. So that means our starting point in the transition might be with drainage, things like improving light and airflow and creating a sand-dominated upper soil profile. And so at this stage, we might be doing the exact opposite of our final goal and increasing the level of disturbance pressure because we need to aerate, scarify, heavily top dress, etc. in order to create that sand-dominated and free-draining foundation. And maybe we might also be increasing the level of nutrition, for instance, to facilitate quick recovery from those heavy renovation programs. And of course, we use loss on ignition organic matter testing in particular to help guide our work and review progress in this most important area. Yes, Glenn. Okay, uh, Henry. Yes. So. Phase one is all about laying the foundation. Yes. What about resetting the environment? You know, reducing the disturbance and increasing the stress. Well, that's phase two, Glenn. Didn't he know that? Who invited him? Oh, all right, all right, everyone. Christ, I'm not sure I like it here. Because that's when things begin to change with the sword, but only when we have our free-draining foundation in place. And that's when your maintenance emphasis shifts into a completely different area and you start managing the establishment of the finer grasses. 
Yes, Claire. So, uh, how long does phase one take, Henry? Well, it can take forever, Glenn, if you're not committed to it. (gasps) What? (laughs) But if you go hard at it with drainage and you target your organic matter, 5% in the top 20 millimetres, 3% lower down, it might take you know, two, three, maybe four years. And although it is disruptive for renovation periods, it's not forever. And we can manage that without too much bother. And remember that through this time, the greens are already getting better in terms of their year-round playability. You know, we should be doing this anyway, Glenn, shouldn't we? Yeah, and of course, many people are doing it. Yes, Glenn, the use of loss on ignition testing has really helped course managers drag their greens out of the mire. And whereas most of my clubs were at the start of their transition in phase one when I was doing my agronomy, a good proportion are now in phase two and the greens are a lot better. And this is where the disturbance theory really starts, you know, with overseeding and playing with the pressures. But many clubs have been happy to stay there having completed phase one and and not move forward but but all the hard work's been done henry why are we stopping there yes glenn but that's for next time (sighs) yes we will talk about phase two next time but we all need to be clear on this that going too soon and overseeding into a poor foundation thatchy and wet is always doomed to failure because that foundation will not support a thriving population of benson fescues and so if you are making slow or no progress then you are probably still in phase one and you need to set a better foundation drainage and organic matter management are part of the commitment Okay. Don't move anymore. There you are. All right. What are you up to? Don't you move a finger. Bugger. Scarf, everyone. We've been rumbled. Come back in, scroats. Well, I'm terribly sorry, sir, but they seem to have got away. I say, Holmes, what the blazes were they up to? There's grass clippings over here and some white tea leaves. What in heaven's name can it mean? Hmm. Elementary, my dear Croxton. Elementary. Well, that was a close one, Henry. Yeah. But I think you just about got away with it. Yeah. Was there any reason for it being so melodramatic? Who can say, Glenn? Who can say? Well, you could, Henry. Sound effects, Glenn, mainly. Remember, it's all about the sound effects.